On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Brandon Smith about his brand new book on the Trinity and Revelation. So we cover all sorts of topics like what does it mean to do theology in an ecumenical mode? Should we want that, especially as Baptists? What do we mean by theology as a holy act? How should we do theology with the Trinity? What is a Trinitarian reading? What is John's overall summary of the doctrine of the Trinity, especially in Revelation? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and you're listening to a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And I always like to give a little bit of a spiel on what we think that really means, because in our context today, uh, when we talk about seriousness, it can sometimes be misconstrued or misunderstood or, or sort of, I guess, trunicated in one direction or another. So what we mean by that is we're trying to be critical thinkers. Uh, so we've got these four virtues that we hold up, charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And we want to uphold the virtue of critical thinking. Um, when me and Brandon started this as a podcast however many years ago, uh, not this Brandon who we're talking to today, a different Brandon who's not here with us today, uh, we realized, and part of the motivation was we looked in our Baptist context and people just didn't want to think deeply or critically or, or in depth about things. And we thought, well, we want to expose Baptists to all sorts of ideas and things to, to really get them thinking about different topics. But we also realized on the flip side that uh, Oftentimes what happens when you do grow in such knowledge is that it can puff you up and make you an arrogant jerk, and we don't want that. We want to have things like charity and curiosity and cheerfulness uh, to be sort of put together. So we try to encourage an intellectual culture that cultivates those sort of things. Now, we sometimes suck at this and aren't perfect at it, but hopefully by repeating it over and over, we will get better at it. Now, enough from me. I am excited to introduce you all to Dr. Brandon Smith who is at Cedarville. Uh, many of you listeners, I am sure, know Brandon. He is, I guess, he's really the the machine behind the Center for Baptist Renewal, which if you know about the Center for Baptist Renewal, you already know they're awesome. If you don't, go check them out. Google Center for Baptist Renewal, and they've got all sorts of awesome material, especially for local churches and how to implement things uh, from our Baptist heritage and to serve our people people well. But he's also got this new book out on the Trinity and Revelation. And I think this is going to be great to talk about because there's been, in my opinion, like sort of a renaissance of things related to Trinitarianism and things that popular term classical theism, uh, a lot of people are interested in it. And what seems to be a common criticism is, well, you guys do all this serious theology, but you're not taking the Bible very seriously. And well, now we have Brandon's book here, who is just walking through the book of Revelation saying, what does Revelation teach us about these Trinitarian doctrines? So I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and it's a really nice balance and corrective, not corrective, but a nice balance to the more philosophical theology, things like things that I like personally. I like to do more philosophically oriented stuff, but we have to remember the exegesis portion, uh, because that is what really grounds and drives all of our theology. So this will be fun. Brandon? Before we get going, I do want to remind our listeners, if they don't listen to Church Grammar, you've got a podcast, go check that out if we forget to mention it. Uh, but for those who don't know you, give me just that 30 to 60 second sort of bio. 
who you are, what you do. And then I'm, I am interested in a little bit of the origin story about dedicating years of your life to thinking about the Trinity and Revelation. Sure. Well, thanks, Jordan. This is, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to spend my day doing anything, talking to Jordan Stefaniak is, is a fun thing to do. So thanks for inviting me on. Um, yes, I think you covered most of the basic bio. I teach theology and church history, primarily at Cedarville University in Ohio. And uh, I'm one of the co-founders of the Center for Baptist Renewal. And yeah, this book is is coming out of an interest of mine that's been developing for uh, probably 10 or 12 years. I went to grad school and was kind of knew I wanted to do a PhD, even in, in my undergrad. I got an undergrad in Bible at Dallas Baptist University. Uh, I did my master's at Criswell College, which is a kind of a small Bible college in Dallas, but has a really good, um, at the time, had a really good MA, sort of academic MA prep program. And I knew I wanted to do a PhD. And so I went there and very quickly... I was just thinking about what do I want to do? You know, what do I want to study if I'm going to go do a PhD? And a lot of people just told me, wait, you know, go through grad school and, and see what that thing is that excites you, that interests you, uh, you know, write on something that you aren't going to get bored of in five years because that's a dissertation is already hard enough. And as I'm going through grad school, you know, I liked a little bit of everything, but I really, um, really started getting interested in the doctrine of the Trinity and particularly the way the church fathers articulated it. Uh, I took a patristic theology class with Christopher Graham, who's a great patristic scholar. And it was it was sort of love at first sight in that sense. I mean, it was sort of everything came together. I was always interested in theological interpretation. Um, I was always sort of interested in Church Fathers and Trinity, at least the end of gra- uh, undergrad, beginning of grad school. And those all kind of coalesced in that patristic theology class. Uh, and I was in there and uh, was on staff at Criswell. And so was Winston Hopman, who's another co-founder of uh, CBR. And he and I we're in that class together and we'd already been having some of these conversations. And so very quickly it was like, okay, I know what I want to do. I know what I want to do for study. And then there was sort of, you know, both of us being in Baptist churches. I'd been a pastor uh, in a Baptist church for um, at that point, five, six years uh, at different, different times. And uh, I just realized, you know, between my interest and what the Baptist church I think needs to hear and even evangelicalism, maybe more generally, I thought here's kind of a path where I can be helpful, you know, for pastors and for academia. And so that sort of birthed Center for Baptist Renewal. Uh, it birthed my interest in the Doctrine of the Trinity, which was, this was probably around 2013, 14, um, not realizing we'd have sort of a Trinitarian Renaissance two, three years later. So we, uh, us, us guys at Baptist Renewal sometimes joke that we had been preparing for years for that moment and didn't realize it at the time. Uh, so anyway, that all kind of came together while I was at Criswell. And then honestly, I read Wesley Hill's book, Paul and the Trinity, and he's using classical categories to do theological interpretation of a book of the Bible. And I was just like, that's it. And that sort of set me on the trajectory of, of doing basically this work, which was my dissertation turned into a book. Very cool. So one thing you do early on in the book, you mentioned this sort of language of doing theology in an ecumenical mode. And I'm wondering, should we include conversation partners from those outside our tradition? And the reason I ask this, I mean, I think if I talk to some of our listeners who are like Anglicans or Episcopalians or something, or Roman Catholics, they'd be more like, naturally, yeah, we want to do that. Although, if I ask a Roman Catholic if they're listening to the Baptists, I don't know if they're doing that that much. So maybe this is a really relevant question for everybody, but I just think of our Baptist context, and oftentimes there is sort of a fear of going outside our tradition. So just walk me through the logic of this. Should we be doing theology in this way? Why we should be doing theology in that way? Yeah, I, you know, Lewis Ayers wrote the foreword to the book, and he's Catholic, and he mentions even in the foreword, you know, that there's this um, 
mode, especially among young Baptists and young evangelicals who want to engage the tradition and kind of sees it as a good thing. And that was an encouragement to me because as a Baptist, I do have that that impulse, like you say, to be ecumenical or, or little c Catholic is is more what I what I would use. But that idea of even as a Baptist, if you're doing theology, even basic theology, doctrine of the Trinity, um, soteriology, I mean, you're already drawing from other sources and other traditions, whether you like it or not, right? I mean, Baptists are only 400 years old. So uh, we are already inheritors of other move- movements, other theological positions. And we have our own flavor of what that looks like, obviously. And so I think for me, it's just sort of like, we're already doing it, even if we pretend like we're not. You know, even the most uh, sort of ardent landmarkists that I know, you get down the road theologically and very quickly they're saying stuff that's been said for 2,000 years, right? So for me, it's sort of like, how do we have a humility to learn from others? And to really be truly Baptist, I think, is to have that approach because the earliest Baptists were, you know, building cre- uh, creeds and conf- or confessions off of creeds and other confessions. The Second London Confession that you know so well, you know, is is a... Uh, very indebted to the Westminster Confession, which is obviously not Baptist, right? So there's so much that's already happening in Baptist history and already we're taking for granted as Baptists. So for me, it's just sort of saying, hey, we all have our own presuppositions. We all already are influenced by others, whether we like it or not. And we all have finite knowledge. So to the best of our ability, how can we draw from the best of the Christian tradition, from the best of others, you know, Presbyterians, Methodists, whoever it is, contemporary with us, I think that is the way that we have to exist in a world that's fallen, in a world in which we have finite knowledge about who God is. So for me, it's as a Baptist, I want to say, I want to get the best from everything. I just want to be selfish. I want to plunder the Egyptians, whatever you want to say. Uh, of course, the Presbyterians aren't the Egyptians. That's a little bit strong. But uh, you know, we want to get the best that we can while also saying, I'm really truly a Baptist. And I think that there is good that Baptists bring to the table. So the danger for Baptists, I think, sometimes is either, the one hand, we don't need anybody else because we basically got it figured out. The other danger, I think, is sort of, um, man, Baptists don't have anything to say, so I'm basically going to dunk people and then be a Presbyterian or something, right? Um, And I think what we can do, actually, is say, as Baptists, we have a particular contribution that we can make to the global church, to the little C Catholic church. So a a very practical example I think of is the way that we do baptism. Um, uh, You know, there's a lot of questions you can raise about whether or not paedo-baptism is baptism or whatever. I'm not really interested in in dealing with all of that, but more of thinking, what is our particular inflection that Baptists can contribute to the church? And when you have somebody who, uh, a believer who verbally confesses the Trinitarian formula of baptism, uh, who is sort of literally put underwater and brought up, you know, buried, buried with Christ and raised again to new life. That's a particular way that we model baptism that I think contributes to the understanding of the gospel. So for me, it's like, what can we borrow or what can we take from the best of our tradition that we already have in our tradition, whether we like it or not? And then what are some ways we can contribute to the church? And I think Baptists have, uh, have the opportunity to do both, to both borrow well and also contribute well. That's that's really good, and one other thing that I want to ask before we get really into the the meat of your book is there's a brief section at the very beginning where you talk about theology as a holy act, mm-hmm. and I really wanted you to walk through that a little bit because I think it's pretty important. Um, it may be under the radar a little bit, even 
you know, a small answer to this, but I, I think this is a really important point that you make, and I'd love to have some expansion on that. Yeah, it was it was a little bit of a late addition as I was working on the book version for IVP, and I had sort of wanted to have some sort of preface or introduction or whatever you want to call it that just said, what are my presuppositions and what what am I doing here? Like, let's not pretend like I'm trying to hide my theology or hide my presuppositions. Let's just say what it is. And so I try to say, you know, along with Gregory of Nazianzus in Oration 27, he says theology is a serious undertaking, not just a subject like any other. And there are various ways to do theology, and there are various presuppositions we bring to the table. There are all kinds of things we bring. But the one thing I think that's important for all of us as Christians is when we're doing theology, we remember that theology requires a basic level of reverence and humility, right? So if theology at its most like basic, basic, basic definition is a study of God or words about God, that's not a trite thing to say. Uh, the work that we're doing, trying to understand scripture, trying to understand who this God is, who's revealed himself to us, should give us a level of reverence and humility to say, I'm doing something holy, right? So doing theology, I think about it uh, sometimes like Moses and the burning bush, right? He, he draws near to the bush. Uh, he's drawn to the beauty, to the wonder of this bush that is burning, but not being destroyed or not being uh, consumed. And then the voice from the bush says, Yes, you can draw near, but don't draw too near, right? Um, and he takes off his, his sandals and he's standing on holy ground. And to me, there's something really instructive about the way that Moses interacts with God there to sort of draw near to God while also recognizing that he's drawing near to something that can consume him, something that could destroy him, right? And so it's a holy act because we should, like Moses, be studying the scriptures and having a level of, of reverence and humility for those scriptures to say, we're on holy ground when we're doing this. And all scripture, all interpretation to me should be always restrained by the fact that we have a triune God who's revealed himself to us. And so when I think about the Trinity in the book of Revelation, I don't think I'm doing something entirely novel. I think I'm just reading the book of Revelation as a Christian who understands that this is beyond all other things that revelation contributes to our, our theology. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Of God himself who has come and put on flesh and dwelt among us. And, and what is it? What is that story being told in revelation? So that's what, that's my sort of way of saying, it's not that if you do eschatology and revelation, you're not doing a holy act. It has to be Trinity or nothing, but that when we're talking about God, we're talking about something serious. And so this isn't just a, an academic thing that I'm trying to do. This is really, truly trying to articulate who this God is. Hmm. That's helpful. So you've mentioned towards the end about sort of the Trinitarian reading aspect of Revelation, and I would like you to cash that out a little bit. Um, when you talk about doing theology with the Trinity or Trinitarian reading, those sort of things, what exactly do you mean? And is that, if we come to the text, if if it means coming with some sort of presupposition, does that necessarily mean we're putting some sort of like straitjacket on our exegesis where we're no longer taking the Bible seriously? Now we're just coming in with our own assumptions and forcing the Bible to be read along those lines. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I try to show in the book is that even scholars and commentators who deny the Trinity, people like uh, James McGrath, uh, who says that Jesus is not truly divine in Revelation, or... Um, Adela Yarbrough, who sort of says there's this angelic crisis, sort of angelic or something like that. 
even those who deny the Trinity in Revelation, who would not like my thesis that there can be a Trinitarian revelation and a Trinitarian reading of Revelation, all have to deal with the triadic elements that are in the text. Um, you can't read Revelation and not see that there is God, there's his Messiah who is on the throne, and that John is having this, you call it a pneumatic experience, or he, he's in the spirit, right? He's, so you've already got the triadic elements right there, whether you like it or not. So then the question is, what is the best way to make sense of all that data? And so, of course, I had the presupposition that Scripture teaches that God is triune. So I'm coming to Revelation assuming at some level that there's not a different God in Revelation that's already been in the rest of the canon. Um, so, of course, that presupposition's there. To me, I think we all bring presuppositions. All of us, even the most sort of historically motivated people who are reading scripture trying to say, I'm not doing theology, I'm just reading this as a history book, they're using categories too. We're all using anachronistic categories, we're all using labels, because we're all trying to describe in some sort of summary or articulation that organizes everything. We're trying to find ways to do that, you know? So, yeah, you know, Richard Bauckham, who's been so helpful on all these kind of things, Richard Bauckham basically says, well, the church fathers, they kind of uh, throw a little too much Platonism on there, and so it ends up sort of missing the point. I'm just really trying to do history. But then he uses divine identity, which he says, well, that is a category I, I made up because you do need to have categories, right? So, I mean, even with with Bauckham, and that's not to make fun of him. That's just to, to, to understand that that's where we're at. And so to me, it's sort of like, of course, I have presuppositions, but I do want to try the best of my ability to demonstrate that the doctrine of the Trinity is not an imposition on John's theology, but is the best way to articulate the theology that's already native to what John is doing in Revelation. And to me, that's a, that's a pretty, that's a, that's a distinction that I think is important to make is that we all are bringing categories to the table. Categories and presuppositions are not bad. They just need to be interrogated by the text itself. And can they articulate the text the way that, that, that way that seems faithful to what John is doing? Um, so David Yego has a really well-known article called the New Testament and Nicene Dogma, which a lot of people draw on when they're, when they're talking about Trinitarian readings of scripture. And I draw on it as well. And he argues that, you know, you can have a concept like homoousios, which is uh, the father and son are of the same substance or are both truly God. This comes out of the Nicene Creed. Um, he shows that you can use a category like that or a category like even say Trinity that can make uh, a concept that can make the same judgments as the text is making. So yeah, the word Trinity is not in Revelation, but does the doctrine of the Trinity help you articulate what's actually in Revelation? So it's not really a, a straitjacket. It's probably not. That's sometimes that's how people view that, right? It's, it's a straitjacket or you're imposing. To me, it's saying we're all doing that. And there is a level of theological restraint that John gives you that you can't just say anything. You have to say what John is saying. How do you do that with the best categories to articulate it well? Yeah, that's really helpful. So now I want to talk about specifically the actual Trinitarian theology of Revelation. So maybe we just start with sort of the overall summary of how John views the Trinity. And maybe does what is the, the unique inflection point that John has here in Revelation that would be distinguished from other books of the Bible? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things to think about with Revelation is maybe the most obvious, which is that it's an apocalypse. Uh, it's apocalyptic literature. It's, it's definitely epistolary as well. So it's sort of like an apocalyptic letter, something like that. But when you read like the Gospel of John, right, you've got Father, Son, uh, Holy Spirit, uh, Father and I are one. I say what the Father says. If you see me, you've seen the Father. I'm going to send the Spirit. He's going to say all the things that I say. 
Uh, if he comes to you, my father and I are going to make our home with you. And for most people, I think that's in some ways pretty straightforward, actually. It takes some takes some exegetical work, but it's pretty straightforward. You get to Revelation, and he's not speaking our language <laughs> in, really, uh, in any really meaningful sense, in the same way that you would say something like a gospel narrative or something like that. And so what you have to do with John is you have to be able to pay attention to that genre and say, what are some elements of apocalyptic literature? And there's a ton of debate about what is apocalyptic and what's not. So that's a, that's a whole other kind of can of worms. But apocalyptic literature is generally Jewish apocalyptic literature that I think this would fit into uh, at some level. It's trying to deal with people in times of suffering, people in times of um, some sort of turmoil who are looking to God to say, what is our hope? What's, our, what's the end goal here? What's the telos? Are we going to be rewarded for our suffering? Is this all worth nothing? And a lot of apocalyptic literature is answering those questions using all types of different imagery and symbols and numbers and all kinds of stuff. So when you're reading the Trinity and Revelation, you've got to deal with the fact that, for example, Jesus is not called Jesus a ton of times. Um, and it doesn't really emphasize sonship language. Uh, there's some of that there, but it doesn't emphasize it. You basically get that he's this slain and risen lamb who sits on the throne. And you don't get the language of father, really. That's not like this big uh, a, a big articulation that happens there. What you get is the one who is and was and is to come, or the one seated on the throne. And then the spirit, I think, is the most difficult, because you don't ever get a clear Holy Spirit title emphasis either, like you do, for example, in John or whatever. And so there you've got seven spirits, and we can talk through that more if you want uh, later, but you've got seven spirits, you've got John in the spirit, you've got um, all these all this prophetic language from the Old Testament prophets that he's sort of reusing in Christian ways. Uh, everything from, you know, the Holy Spirit is the eyes of the lamb, drawing on Zechariah 4. So it, it just takes a different way of reading to understand the Trinity and Revelation because it's apocalyptic and because it's not as straightforward as you want it to be. I'd say where you get the where you get a really good foundation is the fact that you already have in the Old Testament all the categories for who God is. You know, his attributes, his character, all these kind of things, right? So he's sovereign, he's good, he's perfect. Uh, all those kind of things that, that come up in, in the Bible. Uh, you've already got Isaiah who gets a glimpse of the throne room. So you've got some familiar language that's happening there that you can draw on. And so when you think about John and his vision, you've got all these Old Testament ideas coming into it. And then he starts attaching the lamb and the spirit to these same things, right? So that was Isaiah 6, very famous, right? He gets the vision of the throne room, uh, you know, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And John gets a similar vision, but it's so much more built out, right? Now you've got more descriptions of creatures, and they're all facing the throne. And then you've got the one on the throne and the lamb. So now you've got a new wrinkle that's added there. And so when you're reading Revelation, you've got to take into account all those wrinkles and say, how can we make sense of the doctrine of God that's throughout all of Scripture? And then sort of say, what is, how is John, particularly in his own kind of mode and idiom, articulating the same thing that he's saying in the gospel, or the same thing that Paul says, but just in different language? So... I want to ask a more pastoral question here at this point. So we've been mentioning how apocalyptic Revelation is. And I think for me, at least the context I've been in, people, when they read Revelation, are very much attracted to the dragons with six heads or whatever, and not necessarily the Trinity. So I'm thinking if, if we have a lot of pastors who listen, 
how can they help their congregations, just the normal people in the pew, think about how to read Revelation in ways that John would really want us to read it? So instead of focusing on some of the, well, the scorpion has this sort of tale, which tells me that in year 2047, it's going to do that, this is going to happen. We focus more on the lamb who is slain, the father who's on the throne, those sort of things. Yeah, I think one thing that I try to draw out in the book, and I try to draw this out in my teaching uh, here at the university and in churches, is if you if you start with the idea that this is the revelation of God, then that is the driving force, the the subject matter, the content of everything in Scripture. So whatever you say should be derivative from the doctrine of God. You know, so sort of John Webster's God and all things in relation to God, right? If you start there, so as a pastor, you, you want to start there yourself and you want to articulate, look, if we don't know who God is here, we've already missed the boat. If we're already jumping to all of these other sort of categories and all these other questions, we've actually missed the boat. I think the other thing to say is there is a sense in which John is saying you can try to understand some things, right? So Revelation 13, 666 the number of the beast. That's one of the things everybody's trying to articulate, although you've got the manuscript tradition of 616, so have fun with that. Uh, But even there, John says, okay, look, if you have ears to hear, you'll know what I'm talking about. So there's a sense in which John says, hey, there's there's some coded language here that you need to think about. That's fair enough. But that's not primarily what he does. It's very rare, actually, that he does that. Primarily what you see is this is the revelation of Christ, He's told John to go up into the throne room. I mean, all of the major scenes in the book are worship scenes of what's going on in heaven. Who is Christ? Why do we have hope for this sort of new creation that's coming? And even when he's describing things, he always says, "Uh, I saw a throne and it was like this. And it looked like that. And it sounded like that. And there was one who was like this. And that little like in there, I think is actually really instructive for us because I think John is not saying here's all this code that I want you to figure out. I think a lot of it is John saying, I don't know how to articulate what I'm looking at, but here's kind of an idea of what it might be, right? Um, there's some precious jewels on this throne. I don't really, they're, they're kind of like this, you know, they're kind of like a diamond or a ruby or whatever. And I think you also recognize that, for example, in the throne room, um, the father doesn't have a body. He's not sitting on an actual chair. And so, there's all these layers that, that you have to go down before you say, let's literally, quote unquote, literally try to figure out what this is describing. Is the scorpion a Black Hawk helicopter or you know, that kind of stuff? It's not that you don't think about those things, but if that becomes the focus of it, you've totally missed the boat of what John's trying to do because John's not primarily trying to give you a bunch of code. He's primarily trying to show you that God is going to be with you, that God is the one who is sovereign over history, and that ultimately God is the one who will win. And even in, you know, apocalyptic language in Paul, you know, First Thessalonians 4 and 5, where you get the rapture and some other things, uh, when you've got Jesus and Matthew at the end of Matthew, even there, you notice that they're always saying, look, here's the main point. I want you to have comfort and hope that God is in control and that you have a future resurrection, that you have a future with him. So regardless of what happens to you, that's the end goal. And that's what apocalypses generally do. And I think that's what John is generally doing. So if you can help people see those orienting foundational categories, it'll help them not just read Revelation, right? But I think even give them better categories for interpreting all of scripture. 
That's good. Now, what the people need to know is that Brandon has a giant prophecy chart behind him. I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's uh there's uh, all the all the resurrections and all the different timelines you can imagine. I've got them right here. So <laughs> that's that's right. And I had no idea that 616 was also a potential option. And now I'm realizing that I'm in area code 919. So if I flip it upside down, then theoretically yeah. It could be happening here. Anyway, Jesus, Jesus um, is setting up the millennial kingdom in North Carolina. That's that's what you need to. That's what now you need to I know. <laughs> oh, I have too many bad jokes that I don't need to go down. Now, so talk to me a little bit about the Holy Spirit in Revelation. So I think we've mentioned a little bit about the Father, a little bit about the Son. I would be curious about how John is thinking about the Spirit here in Revelation. Yeah, I think. If I if I if this book has made a real meaningful contribution, I hope that it's going to be the pneumatology of Revelation. I, several people who have read it have said that they think that's where it's at too. So it's sort of like I thought that might be the case. I think I thought it was the case primarily because I thought that was the hardest chapter to write by far. Um, but several people have said that, so I'm, I'm hoping that's right. I'm hoping that'll be helpful. So with the Spirit, you've got a couple of things that are going on. You've got the fact that you don't get like I said, the same type of language about the spirit like you get in the gospels and other places. You start out really early and you've got this doxology, this grace and peace benediction, doxology type language, which is common in the New Testament. You see it with Paul, you know, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then sometimes you'll see in the spirit, or you'll see something like the spirit will come up three verses after the doxology is over. You know, spirit's always kind of involved there. And when you read Revelation, you get this doxology. You've got, you know, grace and peace from the one who is and was and is to come from Jesus and from the seven spirits. And seven spirits are actually wedged in the middle. So you can't even say, well, they were tacked on at the end. Maybe that's, they're like right in the middle of it. And you've got a couple of options there. A lot of people, uh, scholars have said, maybe that's just angels. Uh, there's, you know, seven chief angels and in, in this, you know, random Jewish document or whatever. Maybe that's what's going on there. The problem with that is that John is very concerned with proper worship language. Uh, anytime that John tries to worship angels, like he bows down to worship an angel and they'll say, hey, hey, hey. No, 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 like I'm a servant with you, stand up. Uh, anytime that, that he bows down to worship Jesus, there's no sense of impropriety whatsoever. It's, it's, it's entirely appropriate. The spirit, if he's an angel, he would not be included, I think, in a doxology or a worship type introduction like that. I just don't think that that would make no sense of what John is doing. So then that sort of starts limiting your options a little bit. Well, it can't be seven churches or something like that, because again, you're not worshiping the churches. So you've, you've got, you kind of run into an option to me where that, that's, that's probably the Holy Spirit. Uh, the number seven in scripture is, is often, most people know this, often attached to perfection or completion. Uh, Genesis one, the completion of creation is the seventh day, that kind of idea. And seven is a, a clear structure in Revelation, the seven churches, which I think are to all the churches, not just those seven particular churches. You've got cycles of seven in judgment and all kinds of things, right? So seven is this very clear number of completion. So between the doxological inclusion there, the number seven, and the word spirit, that's helpful. Sometimes spirits can be angels, but you can use context to figure that out. You've got the Holy Spirit right in the beginning of the doxology. So that's kind of the first introduction that I think is helpful. Um, then very quickly, uh, verse 10 of chapter one, John is in the spirit and he starts seeing stuff. And so the spirit is also sort of the one who helps him traverse this heavenly realm or whatever's going on here. And you get to the throne room and 
a lot of people make the argument, well, you don't see the spirit sitting on the throne. You see the father and son. So granted, you can have like a Benetarianism. You've got sort of a two, two-pronged worship going on here or something like that. But the spirit, you can't do that. I argue that the spirit is the gatekeeper to the throne room, which means that the spirit has a function that happens throughout scripture, a function of inspiration, a function of enlightening, a function of opening John's mind and eyes to the things of God that angels and nobody else does in Revelation. So you've got the spirit in the throne room, and just because he's not sitting on the throne doesn't mean that he's not doing things that only God does, right? He's giving divine illumination. He's giving divine inspiration. He's the one who basically uh, helps John see all the things that are going on. You also have uh, on the throne, you've got the seven eyes of the lamb that, that go away from the throne and go throughout all the world. And in Zechariah, which is exactly what's being drawn on there, you have the idea of a sevenfold spirit that, that searches the earth. So you've got this Zechariah 4 and some other places, Isaiah 2, some other places where you've got the sevenfold spirit, uh, or Isaiah 11, whatever, 2 or 11. There's so many Isaiahs in there, I can't remember which is Isaiah's, <laughs> which, but 2 or 11. Um, you've got all this idea of a sevenfold spirit, and then John's using that exact language, and he's saying the seven eyes of the lamb, they go out into the world, which is very clearly drawing on the spirit language. And so, no, the spirit's not sitting on the throne. But the spirit is on the throne side of this sort of heavenly topography or, or map, right? Uh, you have all these angels, creatures, elders, everybody's facing the throne. The father and son are receiving worship. And then you have the spirit who both takes John into the throne room and is the one who is leaving uh, the throne area, right? Going away from the throne, not facing the throne like everyone else. Uh, the last thing I'd say, and then we can, you can follow up however you, however you want, um, is that at the very end in Revelation 21 and 22, you have the river of life flowing from God and the Lamb. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit there, it just says the water of life, but all throughout the Gospel of John, the water of life is always attached to the Spirit. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he says, you know, I've got this eternal water that, that, that will never run dry. And she says, show me where it is, you know. And then he doesn't say Spirit there, but in 7... He uses the same language again and says, oh, by the way, I'm talking about the Spirit. So you've got a little bit of language already in Gospel of John and other places where the Spirit is being talked about as this water of life. Well, guess what's coming from the throne in Revelation 21 and 22? It's like the Spirit proceeding from the Father and Son, which is a really common articulation of, of the Trinity. And so I think if you can sort of not just look for the word Holy Spirit, but understand that John is using all kinds of different ways of describing the Spirit— you can build together what I think is a pretty clear pneumatology that puts the spirit on, as Bauckham says, the, the creator side of the creator-creature divide. Wow. It, to me, it sounds like Revelation is far more difficult to interpret and understand than some other books. What, in your opinion, is, has been the most challenging aspect of understanding Revelation? I think I think weeding through the apocalyptic stuff is is really challenging. I mean, I think that's why everybody struggles to read it. Um, there's a real legitimacy to the fact that we read Revelation and have a really hard time figuring out what's going on, and you know how much of its future and how much of it is present and how much is it present and future and how much is it past. You know, I think there's a reason why you've got all these you know four views on the rapture and four views on the millennium and four views on this and that. And so, I think that's the hard thing to work through. I think. If you have, again, I think if you have a good doctrine of God that is sort of shaped by the whole biblical canon, I think that makes it a little easier to come into Revelation and say, I've got some categories to work with already that will help me make sense of some of these things. So if you have a good category 
of the doctrine of God and how the Bible talks about God, and then maybe even a Trinitarian idea there of Father, Son, and Spirit, then you've got some categories that might actually help you make sense of what's happening there. Because like I said, everybody needs those categories to read scripture well, and revelation might be particularly difficult to work through. But if you've got some interpretive categories to say, okay, this is about God, and there's a canonical unity here, that this is sort of drawing on the Old Testament, it's drawing on New Testament ideas, then those things can help filter a little bit some of the things that just seem completely wild and, and out of left field. So that's at least the, the best I've been able to come up with so far is having some good theological and canonical categories to work with. And it gets you at least somewhere, not everywhere, but somewhere. Yeah. Now, I know, you mentioned this early on, this whole Trinity debate that ended up happening in 2016 and following. And if people aren't on the internet, they probably didn't know that this happened, though they could pay, piece some things together because there seemed to be an explosion of literature on the Trinity and doctrine of God and things related. In your opinion, since that's happened, what's your favorite book or essay on the Trinity that you would say, man, everybody, you got to read this. This is going to help you understand God and how you read scripture Hmm. and related to that. Oh my gosh. It's like asking my favorite child or something. Um, (laughs) I think introductory wise, I think Scott Swain's new Trinity introduction from Crossway is, is it's about as good as it gets. I was telling a colleague yesterday, I think uh, all of us here at Cedarville are going to start using it in our gen ed theology classes. And I mean, it's just, it's so, it's got all the organization, it's got all the categories, it just gives you everything you need. So as an introduction, I think Swain's is about as good as anybody's. Uh, Delighting in the Trinity by Reeves is sort of a time-tested classic. Um, So I I think that's a good one as well. I think Swain's introduction really has has made a really big contribution. Uh, Fred Sanders' Deep Things of God, that was one of the first Trinity books I ever read. A lot of people like, uh, really appreciate and respect that book for obvious reasons. Uh, A little bit more advanced, I'd say, uh, Adonis Vidu's Same God Who Works All Things on Inseparable Operations. I'm sort of bullish on the fact that if you get the doctrine of inseparable operations right, uh, that you can get a lot of things right when you're reading scripture. So the idea that the Father, Son, and Spirit uh, act with one action, one operation. This is one God who acts, and yet this one God acts through Father, Son, and Spirit in distinct ways, right? The Father doesn't put on flesh, but the Son does, etc. So I think if you get inseparable operations right, there's just, I think it does a lot of heavy lifting, especially for interpreting scripture. And so I think Vidu's, that's, it's dense. I mean, it's 400 pages and it takes, you gotta, you gotta really wade through it. Uh, but it's really, really good. And it's pretty new. Um, and then I think Thomas Joseph White's new book on the Trinity, which is even denser. That's to me right now, that's sort of like the, the pardon my Catholic, uh, pun about a Catholic book, but it's kind of the Holy grail of, uh, of, I think, Trinity books right now. Uh, He's a Catholic theologian, but he works in a very sort of ecumenical tone, like we talked about. So he's not shoving Catholic dogma down your throat. He's really just shoving good Trinitarian theology down your throat. So I think you can go basically from Swain intro to Thomas Joseph White, advanced level, and that's a pretty good, you know, way to go. And then, of course, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus's Five Theological Orations, I think, is is one of the heights of the the tradition. But in terms of new books that I think are helpful for people to start with, that'd be a good a good handful. Yeah, that, that's helpful. Now, along these lines, you've seen this development of Trinitarian theology that we've seen over the last five, seven, eight, nine years. Is there anything that you think in this Trinitarian box, or maybe the Doctrine of God box, if we want to make it bigger, 
that we are missing and we should be spending more time meditating on, thinking about, and seeing more publications dedicated to a certain aspect of this doctrine? Yeah, I'm going to sound entirely self-serving here, but I think one of the reasons why I get so, why I'm so interested in doing Trinitarian readings of Scripture is I think that there is a like crazy blue ocean of work to be done there. And it's not that systematic theologians are not reading the Bible. I mean, Scott Swain and Fred Sanders, who are two of my favorite Trinitarian theologians, they are, I mean, their, their works are dripping with scripture. So it's not as though people aren't doing that. But I think that sort of focused theological interpretation is, uh, is something that I think there's just a lot of room for. I also think that applying classical categories um, to the biblical text, I think there's a lot of room for growth there as well. So what I try to do, for example, is say, how can we use some pro-Nicene categories from sort of the, the fourth century of inseparable operations and consubstantiality and some of these kind of things? How can these help us read the Bible better? I think there's just a ton of room for us to keep applying classical categories in a way that sort of makes sense of Scripture, because I think that those all those creeds are coming out of scriptural understanding. So I'll have my students, for example, read uh, the council, uh, the, the Nicene Creed, and I'll say, okay, now open up to John 1 and just read these beside each other and, and give me a biblical defense for the creed. And it's a way of exercising to show, hey, these categories actually are biblical. So I think there's just a ton of room to do more Trinitarian interpretation that's not just sort of speculative, but that's deeply rooted in 2,000 years of Christian theology and faithful to what the Bible is actually saying. Yeah, that, that's good advice. And one other piece of advice I'd love to have you comment on a little bit. You know, so we've talked to pastors a little bit, but you're a teacher. You teach undergrad students, and I imagine a good chunk of them uh, want to do further education, whether that's a master's degree in the form of an MDiv or something related, or they eventually want to do a PhD. And we have a lot of people who are listening who are in that sort of boat as well that are interested in further education. What advice would you give them if they're an undergrad or they're a master's student right now and they want to pursue some further education like a PhD, what would you tell them? So general advice on what to do about a PhD. Um, yeah, so we do have a lot of students like that. We've got, you know, primarily we're undergrad. We've got an MDiv program here and, and some grad students that are really sharp. And I tend to tell them a couple of things. One, your PhD is primarily about who you study with because that's the person you're going to have to spend most of your time with for three to five to seven years, depending on how long it takes you to write. So whether you go American sort of system and say, well, I don't need three years of seminars. I feel pretty ready to write. Or you feel like, hey, I need some extra training there. Or you go UK and just write, which is what you and I uh, both did, the UK model at least. I think I, I tend to try to help them think through, do you feel like you need some more introductory work or do you feel like you're ready to write? That's a good question to ask. And then who do you want to study with? And that, that should shape pretty easily, start, start narrowing down. Like what, who are you reading in your grad program that you're like, that guy or that that woman, that's 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 it. That's the one I want to I want to sound like them. I want to read like them. I want to articulate like them. And then I think third, I tend to say, what do you want to write about that you're not going to get bored with for five years, which was the advice that somebody gave me I mentioned earlier. Um, because writing a PhD, writing a dissertation is just it's a grind. And a lot of people joke that it's like 80% effort. I think it takes a little bit more brains than that to do a good PhD, but it, it really is effort. And it's, it's desire and it's support from friends and colleagues and family and everybody else. So I think the three things, you know, make sure you're going somewhere that, that fits what you want to do, study with somebody you want to study with, write on something you enjoy, and have a good community and system of people to support you and encourage you because you're going to need it 
a lot more than you probably think you will. Man. So we've got all sorts of good advice in this episode so far. Um, what's one piece of bad advice that you've received that you would say, this is common and I don't agree with it. I don't think you should follow this advice. I know this is random, but it just comes to my mind and I'm going to ask it. Yeah. Bad advice. Um, you don't have to get a PhD because you don't really need one to pastor. You don't really need one to be a good church member. You know, it's sort of an extra thing to add on top. I encourage people to get PhDs because I think there's no better way to have a real meaningful apprenticeship and deep training. Not just, okay, so on the one hand, your dissertation is going to be pretty myopic, and it should be. But on the other hand, you're learning so many skills in the process of writing that myopic thing that help you think and write and articulate well. That I think pastors, if if it's possible, family and financially and otherwise, PhD is just a different level of training that I think can really help you articulate and, and say what you believe, even if you never deal with your dissertation topic from the pulpit, which I tell our, our students, I say, hey, you never need to say homoousios in a sermon. In fact, you, maybe you shouldn't. Uh, but you, don't, you don't have to, but you need to have that sort of foundation to be able to articulate an orthodox theology from the Bible. And so I think any, any pastor can, can benefit from doing a PhD. And I think that's something that I hear a lot of pastors don't need it. And I guess pastors don't need it, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it. Yeah, good stuff. So for those who don't ha- aren't following you on Twitter or somewhere else, tell me the place, the best places to find you, to interact with you. Where should they go to find all that kind of stuff? Yeah, if you're not following me on Twitter, your life is probably richer. So you can keep not doing that if you want. <laughs> but I've got, yeah, the Church Grammar Podcast you mentioned earlier. Try to post uh, twice a month. Try to have pretty wide-ranging disciplines. So I try to have Biblical scholars, theologians, historical theologians, some politics and culture stuff on occasion, although I'm about worn out by that at this point. Um, and, uh, and then Center for Baptist Renewal, that's where a lot of, a lot of our work is, is happening. And other than that, can you come study with me at Cedarville? You know, if you've got undergrads who want to do Bible and other stuff or want to do a, an MDiv, we've got a great faculty here. So I'd love to have people come study as well. Not a lot of people think about Cedarville to come to seminary, but we have a, a really good faculty here and a really rigorous program. So I'm, I'm going to stump for people coming and studying with us too. So, And Cedarville, you guys are kind of in the middle of nowhere, but you're right next to Cincinnati. So you've got sort of the best of both worlds. If, if people don't like the city life, they can yeah. experience the more rural aspect. Um, yeah, we're an hour from Cincinnati. We're an hour from Columbus. And we are in the middle of cornfields, in the middle of nowhere. But it's a, the flip side of that is it's a really fun residential community because we focus on residential and you really don't have anything else to do out here besides hang out and study, which some people might hate. But yeah, you can always drive an hour to go somewhere. You can drive 20 minutes up the road and, and find a Kroger and everything you need. So, you know, everything's accessible. Uh, but, but if you want to come study and do something residential and be in a, a, get four seasons and a little bit of a bitter winter, which I hate as a Texan, and, uh, you know, just live, live and breathe theology, come on. That's awesome. Well, thanks, man. This has been great. So everybody who's listening, you you know, you need to go check out the book. So I will make sure to have a link to it in the show notes, as well as these other books that Brand has mentioned, Scott Swain's and Michael Reeves and Fred Sanders and everybody. So you can just click it and go there. You don't even have to Google it. I'm doing the work for you. You just click it and boom, you can get the book. I think these books are uh, fundamentally extremely important. So we talk about a lot of stuff on the podcast. We talk everything like, you know, Brandon was mentioning different stuff he talks about. 
But Trinitarian theology, doctrine of God, is kind of like the most foundational thing. How we think about God, how we worship God. So if you're thinking about which book do I need to get, I encourage you to prioritize books like Brandon's. Because I think they, while if you're a pastor, you may not say, well, this isn't going to really help me think about how do I schedule my day better. Well, yeah, it may not teach you how to schedule your day, but it's going to fuel your ministry in ways that you can't count. So I highly recommend getting a copy of Brandon's book as well as the others. And for everybody who's been listening, we do thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.